several of these in a row this week. I'm going to try to get another one out, perhaps. Uh, reason is I have some family obligations coming up soon. My mother uh, needs a little bit better facility, and so I'll be busy. That said, I want to always deliver to our virtual church any and all lessons they would expect, because uh, I'm very, very much dedicated to our Safe Harbor Church, to the thousands who watch us, and to the hundreds that really look forward to this midweek Bible study. So this week, at least three chapters. Uh, two were pu uh, published yesterday, and now we're going to do chapter 17, because here is where it really starts getting good. <laughs> Seriously, when we left our stories, ladies and gentlemen, last time, the forces of good on one side, the forces of evil on the other side. God's angels, the seven last angels he's sending out, full of bowls of wrath, are going to do battle against all the unclean beasties coming out of the devil's pockets on a valley, uh, symbolically, the Valley of Megiddo or Harmageddon, or as most people uh, pronounce it, Armageddon. That's a, um, that is quite the scene. The reason that God used um, Armageddon or Harmageddon as the symbolic site of this battle is because on those this little valley, this little plain, those were the battles that shaped the future of Israel. When, when the future of Israel hung in the balance that's where the battle took place that allowed the faith to continue. This faith is going to be in trouble unless it can survive the onslaught of the dragon. Here's where we start seeing how that battle will commence. But we have to identify the players. So the players are um, really where we're going to spend a lot of our time in chapter 17. And it is an amazing chapter. It is a chapter when there is um, when there's amazing, troubling, horrible imagery in this chapter. It's it's very much a, a PG rated, if not a PG thirteen. Just we need to understand something about sin, and sometimes the picture God has to paint of sin is an ugly one. One of the reasons he has to do that, by the way, is because of what we do with our language and what the, the casual nature uh, that we have with, with sin. For example, adultery is, it's an affair. It's a fling. We don't call it adultery. Greed is just good business. Come on, people. We, um, we don't really agree. Lust, lust is entertainment. That's why so many Christians watch The Bachelor or The Bachelorette and you know who's sleeping with who and who's kissing with who and who's promising who and it's all it's all you know entertainment they'll even post about it on social media oh I'm rooting for this one or that one and I'm going this is no different than the Colosseum this is lust instead of swords but it kills as many people as swords ever did we're just way too casual about sin sin is very destructive it destroys people, marriages, families, but it also destroys nations, empires, cultures. It brings it all down. These pictures are not pretty in chapter 17, but they are necessary. This battle, this battle between God and the dragon, the old serpent that is called the devil, there's nothing trivial about this battle. So let's get started.
Revelation 17, the first six, six verses. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, come, I'll show you the punishment of the great prostitute, I did warn you, PG, who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in a spirit into a wilderness and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore witness to Jesus. Oh boy. Well, this is the face. This is the face of the enemy that God's angels are, are facing in this spiritual Armageddon. This is why the angels were loosed. This is why God said, we gotta stop this. We've given warning after warning after warning. The patience of God is unfolded throughout the book of Revelation. It is now at an end. The enemy has to be put down. And so meeting on the field of battle, here come God's angels. Here come, and, and they've got the stored up wrath of God with them. And here come the devil angels with all of his earthly allies and the spiritual reality behind them. Who or what is this beast and this person? Well, Protestants during the Protestant Reformation, when we first started getting Protestants, they jumped on this. And, and from the Reformation on, a lot of them wrote, this is the Catholic Church. Because look, it's all dressed in the finery and all those robes and purple and scarlet and all of the jewels and in this pomp saying that you know they are they are the the real power on earth you know you you could push it you could push it and try to make it uh, the roman catholic church or the popes but it just doesn't really work it fails on several fronts first of all it's a useless warning to people in the first and second century to say you just watch out in a couple hundred more years, they're gonna be a central bishop that eventually is gonna start calling themselves the Father or you know, El Papa and then the Pope. And then, then after that, of what possible use is that to these people? This doesn't really help them. It's also, um, you know, the, the book of Revelation has just spent about a dozen chapters warning about Rome, the empire system, the worship system, the beast of the land, the beast of the sea, it has gone into great detail about what Rome really is and what the persecution really looks like whenever um, you're not able to buy and sell because you're not in good with Rome. You're not able to have a good job because you're not worshiping the emperors like a good citizen and on and on. Revelation is not gonna lead you up all of describing Rome and then say now, several hundred years in the future, no, this is, allow this book to be written to the people to whom it was written. We're still talking about Rome here. It is not just the government, it is the religious structure, it is the cultural structure, 
and all, all the allies of Rome that allow it to continue to be like this. It's, um, it's always interesting. But when you look at history, it is the small minority that takes over governments and forces the majority to their will. Even during the American Revolution. Whenever the uh, American Revolution started, and mainly all the way through to its conclusion, historians say only about 20% of the citizens really wanted to get out of their relationship with Britain. Now, I'm not sure exactly how they factor in all of this, and so take those numbers, uh, that number rather, with uh, um, a rather largest grain of salt, but it is clear in history that these were the minority. And if you remember, George Washington couldn't even get his Continental Congress to fund the army halfway through or to supply them with blankets, much less with powder and ball and you know, muskets. And they, just, they weren't gonna do it, they weren't in. But it was a small group, the Sam Adams, the John Adams of the, of the day that really pushed and then won the day. And the others, like it or not, they didn't move, and so now this is the government they get. We find this again and again. Um, in the communist um, takeover of China, by far the minority. The, um, the wars between the, the white Russians and, and then the black czars and all this, it's just in Russia that eventually makes it a, a, the Soviet Union, very small elite takes it over, runs it for their power. Rome is only allowed to continue to do what Rome does because the majority are saying, well, we'll just get along and we will shelter under their protection. More on that in a bit. The Protestant reformers who tried to make this about them and the church that they were protesting uh, fell prey to what, it, it's just so easy, and that is to read scripture with an overwrought sense of importance of your own self and your own historical place. This is about Rome. Rome had dominion over the kings of the earth, their earth. And once again, we're not talking about China. We're not talking about what was going on in Peru at the time. The readers of this book are mainly the hearers of this book and the writer of this book. Their entire world was the Roman Empire. They were aware that there were outliers like the Ethiopic Empire. Uh, but when they said Ethiopia, they didn't always mean what we mean when we say Ethiopia. They had an East and a West uh, Ethiopia. They had, a, they had different names for places. Point being, anywhere where they might reasonably get to or might have any effect on their life, that whole world, that was Rome. And it was a prostitute, Rome was, because it, it would take over a country and then it would take over their gods and say, we're bringing those gods in too. And now our gods are bigger than your gods, but your gods are safe as long as you worship the emperor and our gods. And the Christians are looked upon as atheists because we wouldn't worship any of those gods and said they weren't gods. We only believed in one God, but they still called us atheists. This was a, uh, a society that was awash in gods and it committed adultery. We're gonna talk about that word in just a little bit. Uh, adultery by absorbing more of these gods in and their practices and the practices let's let's segue there's a great book by sarah rudin um and i don't know if she pronounces it redden or rudin i think it's rudin uh, 
Sarah with an H on the end, R-U-D-E-N. And you can get it at Amazon, very reasonable price. Sometimes you can even get it Kindle Unlimited so you can read it for free. Uh, and it's called Paul Among the People. And it's not a theology book. It's a review of the literature of the day and showing when Paul was talking about this, this is the world he was living in. And whenever he said, you chose this word, here is why. It is an amazing piece of work. It really is. You don't have to agree with everything in it to really appreciate what she has done for us in bringing all these, these poets, writers, historians, all of the extant literature, and then showing us what it meant. And one of the things we find out is that Rome was a sex-soaked culture. Um, nothing wrong with sex, God invented it. I wrote a whole book about it in the Bible called Song of Solomon, and don't you dare tell me it's an allegory of Christ's love for the church. That's just being silly. He you know, created Adam and Eve with no shame, uh, naked to be with each other. So God's not a prude by any stretch of the imagination. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about sex used as worship, rampant fornication, that um, in fact, one Roman poet said it was uh, considered rude to ask a Roman woman, a citizen of Rome, a Roman woman, to uh, you know, how old she was, but you were allowed to ask her how many lovers she'd had. Again, he was a poet and poets could get very sarcastic and cynical in the day, but it was about like that. Uh, male on young male sex was everywhere and it was um, widely accepted. There were, um, you, if you had very nice looking young sons, whenever they'd go to school, you almost, almost every family that could hired bodyguards to walk them to and from. It wasn't safe. Other men would grab them. Now, again, this is all from Sarah Rudin. You can check her. Um, she, she does original sources. She's a good scholar, but she writes where those of us that are not scholars, can appreciate and learn quite a bit. This was a this was this was a prostitute kingdom. It was a prostitute empire. It had perverted God's intention for his people at every turn. I did several word studies on uh, the word adultery in scripture years ago. And suffice it to say that we have also um, made the error of reading scripture and imposing our legal current definitions upon terms found therein. The, um, the word adultery meant the breaking of a covenant. Fornication covered all sexual impurity, no matter what its iteration. In our society and in English common law, adultery is sex between two people that are, not, that are married, but not married to each other. Fornication is sex between two people that are not married. I was always taught that's what the Bible meant when it used those words, and it, it just absolutely is not. We, um, we made an error. We used our definitions and read them back into scripture. You shouldn't read scripture looking back from where we are. You should go to scripture and read it and look forward to where we are so we can understand more of what God has to say to us here. The word adultery covered any breaking of covenant, including violence, desertion, um, we could go on. But it also was a bigger word than just 
interpersonal issues. In Ezekiel chapter 16, the making of treaties and the making of alliances with other governments is called adultery. You didn't want to do that. And God said, if you do this, it will be adulterous. The same in, in Jeremiah. There are other places where God said, if you go and make alliances outside of the ones I've told you to make, that's adultery. You've broken my covenant. All right. In fact, by the way, if you take a look at list, uh, a look at list of sins, Patrick Sloden, uh, you will find in the New Testament that sexual sin is listed separate from adultery in modern versions. And if you start writing me about modern pervi perversions, I will um, I will use the block function uh, because I don't read kind of need that kind of thing. I was trying to find a kind word in my life. These, uh, they are correcting a King James mistake there uh, when they list them separately so that we can understand what adultery means. By the way, I've been to many places where the minister will use a word and say, now Webster says this word, and I'm going, oh, it doesn't matter what Webster says. It matters what they thought of when they use that word. And you would be shocked at how many times that's a different term entirely. George Washington, uh, one of the first presidents, and a whole slew of presidents after him, warned against foreign entanglements. Don't make treaties, he said. Don't make treaties with anyone else in his farewell speech. And then again, you had John Adams, you had so many others that said, don't, um, don't make any treaties with foreign nations, because if you do, that compromises who we are and what we want to be about. Now, I'm not a politician. I read a lot of history. I would submit that there are times when it is good and necessary to make a treaty with another nation, but they are never neutral, and they always tend to um, ad adulterate your own commitment to your own people. If we make a treaty to send, and let's do a really good one, right? Let's say there's a famine uh, somewhere. Let's say it's in South America. And we make an agreement with uh, the nation there saying, we will send a billion dollars with the food if you help us divide it this way. That, that's a good and proper thing. You're feeding people. But we cannot pretend that that's neutral. It does mean that your citizens will have to pay for this. And with all the different layers of bureaucracy, they, all, they may get half that much food down there. Still, feeding people who are hungry is a good thing. You see what I mean? That gives us the other definition of adultery back then and now. To adulterate something was to water it down or to have impurities put into it. Adulterated wine was a serious issue all the way through the Roman Empire. Uh, adulterated whiskey was still an issue until recent times whenever states and nations began to make uh, definitions of what you could call whiskey or scotch or bourbon or like people poured in impurities. And even to this day, many of the, um, the whiskey type spirits, which are um, generically called brown spirits, many of them of the cheaper kind have fake coloring put in there. It doesn't come from the oak barrel. It is adulterated with food coloring to make it look like it's older. So you have to, um, uh, have to be aware that we're still using that term that way. So if, I, uh, if I'm a workaholic, I've adulterated 
my relationship with my wife in that I'm, I've added work in there between us and she's not getting the full benefit of having a husband because work is being placed in front of her. You see how that word adultery works? This woman, this beast, this uh, that's writing the red beast is full of adulteries, compromises, broken covenants, impurities. People had compromised so much with Rome, um, some, well, to be fair, in order to live, to buy, to sell, to shelter inside of its system. But they adulterated so much that the revelator says they were drunk, they were senseless. That if they just opened their eyes and saw what was real, they would not see the colonnades and the palaces. They would see this horrid person on a red beast with horns and heads and awfulness. This woman does have power, hence the horns and the heads. That's their way of saying power, and a lot of it. But all over this beast are written blasphemous names. What's moving her forward is the beast of blasphemy. What would that mean? Do you know we still had issues with what blasphemy means um, or meant all the way through the Middle Ages? And in America, it is completely off the code, uh, the legal code books. We, they just don't even try to define it. Uh, during the medieval age, soldiers that were fighting for Christ and their kingdom, whether Catholic or Protestant or whatever version at the time, thought nothing of killing each other, thought nothing of robbing poor farmers of all their foods and raping their families. But if somebody said, God damn, they're going, oh, that's blasphemy, they must be killed. It's, isn't it weird what we pick and say, this is the horrible thing, but this is okay. When God just says, would you just look at the woman on the beast? That's what you're looking at. All right. Um, this blasphemous names back then would have been claiming deity. They were the ruler of the world, the savior. Um, in fact, in Jesus's day, emperors would have stamped on coins, Lord and savior. The same titles that Jesus was taking and appropriating. Uh, whenever Jesus does it, it's legitimate because he's telling the truth. But whenever they did it, it was blasphemy. Uh, here she is. I mean, she looks stunning. She looks beautiful, especially for the people of the age. And at the time, at this time, London was a little settlement of a few hundred people on a muddy bank of a river. It wasn't anything. But then you go to Rome and whoa, look at the sights and the sounds. But God says, if you really look beyond all that jewelry and the finest of clothes, she's full of the blood of others. And she is the sworn enemy of the people of Christ. I know that some of you are listening as you walk or drive. And by the way, many of you have said, Mike, can we not do this on a podcast? Probably, but right now we've only been a church for eight weeks. We are running as fast as we can and we don't have a whole lot of people able to help us with this. So we're, you know, we have thousands who watch, but on the ground with us in an office, we will get to the podcast. But a lot of you are uh, using it as a podcast merely by listening to it on YouTube as you walk or as you drive which we really, really appreciate. So you're not right now able to turn back and look, but just, just as a callback, this beast has been shown to us before. It's in Revelation 13. 
And when we covered Revelation 13, we mentioned that this beast had been shown to us before in Daniel chapter 7. So you can go take a quick look back there when you're not driving or running. Uh, a couple of words here bear further examination. She's full of the blood of martyrs. The word martyr means witnesses. And this phrase can and probably does mean two things. One, full of the blood of martyrs, that she's killed a whole bunch of Christians. Uh, historians are kind of all over the map on this, but uh, I, I, do like, um, I do like the big round number of 100,000 Christians were killed by Rome throughout its period of time. Um, I think that we, you could probably double that easily if you also took into account those that, were, um, those that died because they had to flee or they had no access to medicine within the empire because they were not looked upon as good citizens. So she was full of the blood of martyrs, absolutely. But also, you can read it as her streets were full of witnesses to Christ. So it's not like she couldn't see them or she'd never heard of them. In fact, Rome had spies in the Christian camp for years and some of their written reports back to Rome are still extant, we, we can read them. So the gospel was out there. This was eyes open, refusing it. Well, she, uh, she herself, not just the beast and not just the people who are drunk with her adulteries, she also is drunk. Self-deception is addictive. Um, you know, she kept telling herself she was wonderful and right and godlike, so she became drunk with it. She dulled her wits, dulled her insight, dulled her wisdom, dulled her ability to see what was right and what was wrong. I will confess to you that uh, you know, my sins probably uh, shock and make you shake your head, and your sins do the same to me. I mean, all of us understand our own selves uh, much better than we understand somebody else's. And I understand the mechanics of addiction, I understand the, the neuroscience of addiction, and I, I hurt, I literally ache for people who are caught in, a, in addiction. I'm not talking about addiction here. I'm talking about, I don't get people who say, come on, let's go out and hit a few bars, have some drinks, get a little drunk, get a little crazy. And so, in other words, half of country music, I don't get at all. Because why would you want to be insensate, unable to enjoy or appreciate what's around you, to feel horrible later, um, and to end up with no money? It doesn't seem to make sense to me. And, um, and again, that, we're not talking alcoholism here. We're talking about the people who decide to use alcohol as entertainment at certain times and get, get their drunk on somehow, or a serious buzz in all capital letters and, and you know, circled around it. Alcohol is a weird chemical, by the way, just to let you know that. I'm not anti-taking a drink by any stretch of the imagination. God never said that, but he said never drunk. And you really do need to know that limit and stay well back of because the phenols, that's the active ingredient in alcohol, uh, it, let's just say that this is your dial, all right? Um, it's good, 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 proper poison. There's no gray area. It immediately goes from okay, even helpful, like a glass of red wine if you've got uh, arthritis or some heart issues, helpful to poison, period. So you really need to know where that line is and stay well back. That said, these people are drunk. The beast is drunk. 
woman on is drunk. Everybody around them is drunk. They're not paying attention. They're not seeing what's really going on. And now a stranger section. Seven through, it was just seven and eight now. When the angel said to me, why are you astonished? <laughs> I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and the seven horns. The beast which you saw, oh, by the way, he's explaining it. Now let's see if after reading verse eight, you feel explained unto. The beast which you saw, once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. Well, that sorts it. I mean, that clears everything up. I don't even need to do the rest of this, do I? Yeah, probably. Um, I'll wait if you need to go get a couple of aspirin. Yeah. Refreshing beverage. Ready? Okay. This beast, this empire will not fall overnight. I can remember when I was in middle school reading about the fall of the Roman Empire. And I don't know what your middle schoolers read, but you might want to say a prayer for my parents. It seemed to me that they were talking about an invasion and then a collapse. But the truth is far more complex than this. There were quite a few sacks of Rome uh, in other words, invasions where they just destroyed the city, burned it. Um, 390 BC, long before Jesus, the Battle of Alia by Brennus, the uh, king of the, um, what was it, Sessone Gauls. And then uh, 410 AD, the, uh, the Visigoths under Alaric I, and then you had the Vandals in 455, uh, and yes, to vandalize is the, um, the word the Romans used, that root word, to describe what this, this large invading force known as the Vandals had done to Rome. And that was under Genesaric, um, or Genseric, some people spell it. Then you have um, 546, the Ostrogoths under King Totella. They came back the next year um, and stayed a while, 549 to 550, um, and siege and occupation of Rome. And then there's 1084, where the, I'm using air quotes, um, Christians under Robert Guiscard, the Normans, and Normans were a people that came from the north, uh, northwest of France and around that rim and up into the Scandinavian and into what is today called Russia. And there were several splits, the Norsemen, the Vikings, the Normans down in France, yeah, they got shoved to the edges, but uh, Robert Guiscard sacked it in 1084. The last sack of Rome um, was, was in 1527 by Charles V, who is known as the Holy Roman Empire, the Holy Roman em Emperor, rather. Holy Roman Emperor sacks Rome. Wow. There, didn't see that coming. Well, maybe they did. But the whole point is, the fall of Rome was a process, not an event. Uh, back in the 1700s, Edward Gibbon wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. It's a big book, you can probably get it free. Um, it's because it's, it's long out of copyright. It's a bit dry um, and you're gonna need a notebook and a scorecard to keep all the names straight. But he, he shows that decline was a roller coaster when each time the roller coaster, he didn't use the term roller coaster, 
Each time it came back up, it failed to get as high as it was last time. Till eventually, um, it all falls apart. So the early Christians here are being warned. It is, it isn't, it is, it isn't. That one battle does not make a war. And that their enemy would rise again and again, only to be ultimately defeated to the point where now, what do Christians do? Christians go to Rome and take selfies in front of the ruins. Jesus won. Well, then the revelator says this. And again, we will explain. This calls for a mind with wisdom, starting verse 9. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Rome was always known as the uh, city built on the seven hills. Uh, so he's really identifying her. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is. The other is not yet come, but when he does, he must remain only for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. And I know right now you're going, what? Uh, sadly, sadly, uh, when you entered the stadium, they did not offer to sell you a program. So let me help you find where you are. Unless you're a historian of Rome, or a first or second century Christian, this will lose you. So let me, let me help you by showing you what they would have heard when they heard this. It was written to them. It's a description of Rome's emperors. These are the ones that are of concern to them. Five were already dead. The sixth one was. Another one's coming. And then there's a rise, we'll get to that. The five that are fallen. It doesn't start with Julius Caesar. A lot of people think that's true. No, Julius Caesar was the last, um, the last ruler over a nominal Roman Republic. The Senate still didn't have quite as much power. Uh, I'm sorry, let me back out of that. That was completely wrong. The Senate had far more power during Julius Caesar's time than it would later. Um, and he was never declared emperor as such by the Senate. Um, so the, the emperors were Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. Um, Vespasian would be ruling, uh, by the way, Vespasian would be poisoned by his son. So his other son, Titus, became emperor, and Titus was poisoned by, the, by his brother. Same one that poisoned his dad. So next time you think about you have a hard time with the family over the holidays, could be worse. Uh, I have a good friend who was a missionary for a long time and he, uh, I knew him for much of my time in the Ohio Valley as a, as a boy and then as an adult leader, uh, Jack Abels. And he's, he's looking for a publisher. And if you're a publisher that would like to have a really good book uh, he's written a commentary on the book of Revelation that is actually geared so it can be used back in Uganda and in Africa. Um, so, so it's not written, you know, with a bunch of theological deep digging, but it's accurate. And um, Jack would want you to know, by the way, he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't say he agrees with everything that comes out of my mouth, but we, we have a lot of great mutual respect. Anyway, he does a great job in this section of taking... Uh, on two passages that modern-day prophets fight over all the time. Back in Daniel 7, Daniel does the same beast, but he has more kings than in Revelation. Why? Because Daniel lists them all. 
all of them. Whereas Revelation only lists those that were generally accepted as legitimate emperors. Um, after ne I'm gonna do this as fast as I can. After Nero died, the family line from which the Caesars were chosen was pretty much wiped out because Nero kept killing them. He was afraid one of them would rise up, his own family, and take over. So he, he you know, any, anybody that looked promising then looked dead. But then he dies. So where are we gonna get our, our line? This, um, this whole idiotic thing of uh, there must be a bloodline succession for greatness and rulers. It's just ridiculous, but that's the way we've run most of our world, most of its existence. Um, after Nero died, three emperors popped up and popped right out. The Roman Senate uh, actually validated and declared three men in quick succession to be emperor. And by the time they hit number four, that one stuck, Vespasian stuck. Uh, Romans referred to that as the year of four emperors. And it was not a stable environment. Daniel has 11 horns that take away three and you come up with the same number of recognized emperors that you'll find in Revelation by the time you're done reading it. Sorry if that sounds confused, but Daniel's target, his readership was not the same as the readership of this book. Therefore, they, they told the story in the way that works for their readers. Um, by the way, if you're wondering, uh, the three that didn't reign long enough to really make a mark were uh, Galba, Otho, and Vitellius. Now you know. And if you were looking for baby names, there are three you can rule out. I'm not as good, Jack, as laying this out for you, but the difference in counting has that whole target audience thing. Um, there were also, there was a civil war going on between two families, both of which wanted to be the dynasty that ruled Rome, the Julian and the Flavian. <coughs> um, by the time Vespasian came, the name of those three pop-up emperors was, was erased. No longer said in public prayers, no longer on banners and statues. So the common person on the street who doesn't have access to news and only hears rumors in marketplaces probably didn't even know the names of those guys. So Revelation, the Revelator keeps it very simple here. The eighth emperor would truly become a beast as, as the Bible says they would. Domitian was not of the house of Nero, but he would become known as a reincarnation of Nero, the second coming of Nero. He was even called the bald Nero. He didn't like that name, by the way. Domitian st uh, stepped up the persecution of Christians and even made it a, um, the, the public policy of Rome throughout the empire to persecute Christians when he found them. Domitian was truly beastly. Uh, we'll talk more about him probably in a bit. And then let's take a look at 12 through 14. The 10 horns you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. The client kings of Rome would join in, these little kings, these little horns would join in to get in good with Domitian and then secure their power by fawning over him. And whatever he says goes because he is truly God. Like King Herod, their kings really in names only. 
because Rome allowed them to keep their throne if they behaved and did what Rome wanted. In history, this is called client king, and it's not all that unusual. Well, should the number 10 be taken literally here? Well, it can be, uh, starting with King Herod and counting forward, but it might not be necessary to do that. The message is clear to the, the readers of this or the hearers of this. The local kings are not going to help you. You're on your own. You cannot go to your people and say, run to Herod and say, Herod, you're a Jew. <laughs> kind of. You're a Jew. I'm a Jew. The Rome is hurting us. Would you help us? No. Herod is in hock to Rome. He's a client king. He helps you. He loses his power. Not going to happen. So they're being warned. All of those other little kings are just going to join in. And then uh, I'll read the last bit of um, verses 15 through 18. I've turned two pages here. So, you know when you read a book a whole bunch and then the pages start sticking? There you go, because I got little bendy bits. There you are, starting in verse 15. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. It's an empire. That's the only kind of place that covers. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. Thought they were allied. Thought they were in hock too. Oh, it's getting good. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's rules are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. All right, verse 18 just says, Rome. Um, what, what in the world was going on in those other verses here? Well, it's, um, it's not that complicated if you think about it. Oh, yes, my Lord. Yes, my Lord. You are the greatest, my Lord. Wonderful, Lord. We will take, I, I, we, we are honored to pay taxes to you, emperor. And, uh, you know, thank you for your great benevolence toward us. And, this, and, and inside, they hate them. They want to be them. They want to take the power. And so, like Herod, they grab everything they can. Legally, if, illegally, through murder, war, whatever, they grab all they can to a point where Rome's going to be sacked by its own people and its client kings again and again and again. They're going to strip Rome naked. They're going to use the stone used to make all these palaces to the Caesars. They're going to build sewers with them and roads with them, and they did. They were allied, but they hated each other, and they hated Rome. In contrast, our weapons, and we're about to wrap up, guys, long chapter when it comes to complexity. Um, their weapons were anger, greed, lying, subterfuge, treachery. Our weapons are love and grace, and it's unbelievably sad that many Christians have forgotten that. Our, we our weapons are love and grace. And if we come upon some Christians who have forgotten that, we should offer them our love and our grace. The actual fall of Rome comes next in chapter 18. I will leave you with this. The great scholar, minister, and good man named Randy Harris sums up Revelation thusly. Jesus has a team. Satan has a team. 
Jesus's team wins. Pick a team. Pick a team. Whatever and every decision you have to make today and forward, make sure you pick the right team. God bless. We'll see you next time.